Thank you, Mike, for leading us in that time. Um, when I think of Mike, I think of, because I have to comment, right? On those. Uh, as, as, <laughs> as Gandalf said to the great white horse, Shadowfax, he's the lord of all horses and has been my friend in many dangers. I don't know why I think that when I see Mike, but <laughs> doesn't resemble a horse at all. See the compliments. You look quite handsome in your beard. I just like to see him blush. That's what I am going for. But, but Mike really loves the kingdom of God and loves the church. I know we can say that about many, but uh, really in partnership with Mike and known him for a lot of years and just that partnership has grown in particular over the last several years as we've um, thought and schemed and talked and prayed together on how the Lord's church uh, will survive the tests and the storms against her and uh, to continue to bring glory to the Lord in all that we say and do. And so you have a great kingdom ally in uh, Mike Phillips, and so I appreciate him. And worth getting to know, not quite as much as his wife, Jen, but still, you know, worth getting to know. Thank you, Laura, for that presentation of the, the Laura's presentation is deceiving because she's so relaxing and calm in her presentation, yet she is the energizer bunny of missions. She just is. Uh, we've been waiting to see if the batteries ever get changed. Tim's been waiting for it to kind of, and it just doesn't happen. She is, she's a calm presentation, but don't let that fool you. She gets things done. And that's what's amazing about Laura and her heart and her passion is there in everything that she does. And uh, she doesn't like me making it about her, but in some time, in some ways it is. And so I appreciate you, Laura, for that. Um, and I'm just going to keep going. Just go down the list. I don't even know why you need me this morning. All presentations have been instructional, have been directional, and all that sort of stuff. So I'm offering my resignation. You don't need me. I'm done. Pastor Tom, earlier, we did not coordinate this, but as he reminded us of our mission and the pillars that hold our church together and our focus for what we are doing uh, as we live under the um, the leading and the knowledge of the scriptures and how we're doing that as a people connected, and then, of course, moving out into the mission field that is for us in our city and in our state, in our country, and even the world around us, as we heard from the presentation about our partners in Haiti. And so being reminded of those things, like I said, wasn't something we necessarily coordinated, but it's going to come right out of the text of Acts 6 for us this morning. The formula doesn't really change, at least from a biblical standpoint, the formula for a church's success or longevity or any of those things does not change. Sometimes we put different language on it. Um, sometimes we, we try to say it in contemporary ways that the generation that we're ministering with will hear it and come alive in a fresh way. But really, it should not steer away from what's been spelled out to us very plainly in Scripture. And as we heard from Pastor Tom, it's pretty basic. We grow in our knowledge and understanding of the Scriptures. We make sure that we're doing that in community, that we're not leaving people behind or thinking, I, I don't need that church. I can I can find the Bible my, on my own. I can worship God under the sun and all these kinds of things. But we know that growing together in a community is what stretches us and shapes us. It's what presents God's glory uh, to a lost and dying world, because as we know, the scripture says that that's how they'll know that we belong to him is by a love for one another. You can't love one another if you're not with one another. So, and then all of that leads us to march out of these doors. 
All of that leads us to be a light and a testimony of all the things that we've seen and heard Jesus do in our lives and the lives of those around us and the lives of the history of the church. When a church walks away from those three things, uh, things get really squirrely. Things get all out of whack. It becomes more about organizational success and slick programs and all these other sorts of things. You can have those things, but apart from those fundamentals, the church is leaving itself wide open to attack, which we see. And by God's grace, uh, you know, uh, Satan has not been successful at, uh, at Faith Church over the many decades. I'm privileged to be the third um, senior pastor in the history of this church. And oftentimes churches look to all that has happened in the past and they want to memorialize with anniversaries and things. And those things are good and important. But really, it's not about any one person's leadership or any one person's accomplishments or any of those sorts of things. What has maintained this church, as it has for so many, is the focus on those three things that we talked about. To be prepared for the various attacks that Satan will levy on the church. When we were studying Ephesians together, we said that the uh, seminal um, uh, theme of the book was unity. We found that from Ephesians 4 in the first three verses where Paul says that as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So the broken record, in particular in the last season of our church together, that we've sounded like is unity, unity, unity. And trusting that any success or any accomplishments or any moving forward that this church experiences will be done as we do it together, not leaving anybody behind and not doing it despite one another. So that causes us to change our metrics a little bit on what success looks like. And it's not about the big flashy accomplishments and those kinds of things because those don't always determine unity. So it's really no different as we come to Acts. We're seeing the birth of the church. We're seeing the apostles um, see the movement of the spirit, see these incredible miracles that, that God is accomplishing. And they recognize, too, that this isn't going to happen without being together. They recognize, too, that some organization and some some uh, unifying and unity of the church as a, as a movement needs to take place as well. But this is after God has already started to move in their midst. And yet every time he moves, we see this one common denominator, and that's that they're together. You may remember in Acts 2, we saw in a couple of different places, verse 1 was when the day of Pentecost arrived. This was the big, splashy moment. This is the moment that the Holy Spirit arrives at the anniversary celebration, and they come. he comes, and he moves in dramatic fashion, and he speaks in languages through the individuals that didn't previously know the language. And he speak, and they're speaking in the tongues that the people that know those languages hear, and they say, what's going on here? They don't know how to speak like us, and yet we hear our own languages. So they explain what's going on. But when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Jesus had said, don't leave the city. Wait for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. So what did they do? They huddled together. They stayed unified, and the Spirit came. Later on in the chapter, we see all who believed were, as a result of that, they were together and had all things in common. We see the 
kind of the extreme expression of this a couple chapters later. Where it says the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And we called these Honda verses because they were all of one accord, right? Wonk, wonk, wonk. Now, we've been talking in the last many months, about a year now, about uh, this church's moving forward in a concentrated way to reach the people of the city of Waterville. Uh, we've thanked the Lord for his reach that he's given us in the outlying areas and that we do know some folks from the city here. It's not that we don't. But at the same time, we we have a city on our doorstep that we don't necessarily have concentrated engagement with. And so for the last year or so, we've been trying to ask the Lord, lead us in these ways and show us how we get something like that started and which direction should it go. But none of those things have been uh, forced on the church or run ahead of because we want the church to be in this together. That unity, more than accomplishing some some incredible vision or some kind of outward um, successful endeavor, is so much more important to us than being able to say what we did in the last year or something along those lines. If the Lord is in it, he will be in it with all of us moving in that direction. Because I believe that more than anything, the impact of the church is seen in her unity while we are making disciples. So let's get back to Acts. Let's come up to the place that we're studying here in chapter 6. As we've heard that Satan has levied his attacks on the church. They have not been that successful. It's not that he's done trying, but they just aren't working like he expected them to. We saw that there was persecution from outside, that the ruling council, we know them as the Sanhedrin, they um, came down hard on the apostles. They jailed them, they beat them, they sternly warned them, stop doing this, don't go out and preach and teach, don't heal in the name of Jesus any longer. And they continued to do so. So despite the persecution from the outside, the gospel moved and had its success, and many thousands of people were joining the cause of Christ. So Satan says, well, let's try something else here. So pollution moves in on the inside of the church. And we have two characters, Ananias and Sapphira, a husband and wife, who wanted to represent to the church that they were giving everything they had, but they were holding a little back from themselves. Remember we said the the guilt on them wasn't because they didn't give everything. It's they wanted everyone to think they were giving everything and yet held some back for themselves. They were tempted and gave into that temptation and bit on greed and caused deceit. And then the power of the Holy Spirit had them drop dead instantly. So Satan says, I've got them now. Holy Spirit says, no, you don't. We're going to clean the sin from the camp and we're going to continue to move because this is the Lord's moving. This is the Lord's church. He is not going to let anything thwart it. So Satan, not giving up and not wanting to be done, now starts moving in a way in which I believe has been the most successful kind of attack that he's had on any church in history and continues to have on the church, capital C, in all of history. And that is the attack of distraction or diversion. Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev 
He used to tell of a time when there was a wave of petty theft in the Soviet Union. To contare this, the authorities put up guards around the factories, and at one timber works in Leningrad, the guard knew the, the workers in the factory very well. The first evening, out came Pyotr Petrovich with a wheelbarrow and said, on the, and on the wheelbarrow, a great bulky sack with a suspicious looking object inside. All right, Petrovich, said the guard. What have you got there? All right, I'll stop. I just have watched a lot of movies and stuff, so. Oh, just dust and shavings. Come on, the guard said. I wasn't born yesterday. Tip it out. And out came nothing but sawdust and shavings. So he was allowed to put it all back in and go home. When the same thing happened every night of the week, the guard became frustrated. Finally, his curiosity overcame his frustration. Petrovich, he said, I know you. Tell me what you're smuggling out of here, and I'll let you go. Wheelbarrows, my friend. Wheelbarrows. The future of any church is determined by how well we anticipate distraction from the enemy, how well we stay focused on the mission that God has given us. And I'm not, don't think that you came here with your hurts and with your frustrations and the difficulties of the week and you just want an infusion, if you will, from the word of God and some hope given to you. Don't think I'm here just to talk to you about what we're going to do as a church organization together. I know that that wouldn't breathe a lot of life into your soul today. The principles that we're going to talk about and what we're going to underscore from what's already been presented this morning are still the same principles that we take home, that that change the world in which we live in if we adhere to them. And I think we're going to see this displayed for us here uh, in Acts chapter 6. So let's read the text together, uh, verses 1 through 7 in its entirety. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and we will, uh, we will appoint to this, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we'll devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole uh, gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. If we're going to look and see what is it, what makes a church successful, what makes the people of God successful, the first principle that we see is they're going to stay focused on the essentials. They're going to keep their eye on the main thing that the Lord has laid out before them, no matter what diversion, no matter what distraction is headed their way. When the apostles say it's not right for us to neglect the teaching of the word of God in prayer, to serve tables, in our American culture, what we instantly hear is a snobbery kind of thing. It's like, hey, we're doing the important stuff. We're doing the high calling of God. We're not to be bothered with these little things like serving tables. 
This isn't consistent. It's not what the text is saying, but it's also not consistent with the same apostles who we just saw chapters earlier, noticing the needs of the handicapped, the broken and the blind and healing and helping and serving those individual needs. They weren't above that kind of work. But there was a momentum, there was a movement taking place in their particular gifting and experience that they knew the Lord has set us aside for something unique and specific. It would be a shame for the entire uh, momentum of the ministry if we were to be pulled away from those things to do these other things. So it's important for us that when, when they say it's not right for us to be taken away from these things, it's a maintaining of focus and not being a snob about being too big for those kinds of details. You know this, there's nothing new. Every good business guru and leadership manual and all these sorts of things talks about delegation ad infinitum. It is just constantly available to us where people are talking about the pros and cons of how delegation should work and when you micromanage something, it has a tendency to kill it. This is not new information. But sometimes when we come to the matters of the church, we lose sight of the fact that sharing the distribution of the gifts and the and the responsibilities of the maintaining of the church and doing those things that we somehow somehow forget those principles and forget that that we delegate to maintain focus. We delegate in the church so that gifts are exercised and built up. To see that the people who are actually better than others at doing certain things are freed to actually exercise those gifts. The other part of this, too, that I, I don't think gets talked about enough is the humility that can be bred in the leadership or those who are typically seen as being at the top of any organization. In the economy of God's grace, when we start to see that we're on the same level as everybody, we're just doing different things. When you see the movement of the church taking place, when you see the gifts of God's people being fully expressed, there's no way any of us can take credit for it. Someone in my position or where the elders are or anything like that wouldn't look around and say, because of my brilliant scheming or because of my gifts and this, that, this thing is working. When you see God's people really doing what they're equipped and gifted to do, you just sit back and marvel. You kind of go, okay, I couldn't plan this. I couldn't orchestrate this. I certainly couldn't dictate it. There's a, there's a humility that is built, almost forced on those who would otherwise think too highly of themselves when good delegation and the exercise of the gifts of the people in the local assembly are taking place. Now, I, I have the privilege of, I'll be a little bit gushing here and stuff, but I, I have the privilege of serving with staff that understand this and probably, if anything, are left alone by me because of my recognition of the fact that they're really good at what they do. Um, but it's really a, a spoiled atmosphere for me to be in. I was teasing earlier when I said, what do you need me for? I don't want you to get rid of me. But I know what happens when you see them do what they do well, right? It's, it's really impressive because um, the, the Lord has called and gifted each of these folks together to do some incredible things. And so when you see that on that example, it's what I get to see day in and day out. We get to see that in the uh, atmospheres of the ministries and things that are taking place here at Faith. When you see God working and you see him moving uh, in incredible ways, you can just sit back and worship and marvel and thank him that he's built the church the way that, it, that he has. All of that's to say that w- the, what the apostles were focused on 
what we are calling the essentials are really straightforward. Like I said, it doesn't change. They, they show a priority to the word of God and they show a priority to prayer. Second Timothy three reminds us, you've heard this a bunch. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There's tons of scripture that testify about itself and its worth and its value. This perhaps is one of the best summations of why we would hold the word of God higher than anything else in our midst, because it is profitable. And what is it profitable for? Everything. You say, well, it doesn't give me a manual on how to fix the dishwasher. No, but it tells you how not to lose your cool while you're figuring it out. Or it tells you how to, you know, uh, financially manage your life so that these things don't keep happening to you. Or it talks about all the things that help you handle the environments and the situations in which we find ourselves in. It is equipping us for every good work. It is completing us in everything. And as we continue to hold the scriptures highest above us, what we see is that they are the guiding life-giving source of all that we need. Why holding the standard of God's word highest above us is a unifying thing is because now you're not just taking my word for it. You, You should not do that, by the way. If it's not coming from the word of God, everything that I say should be suspect. Or anybody in a position of some kind of authority or having the microphone or anything along those lines without holding the word of God highest as the standard by which to follow, then it's a, there's a high likelihood that we will be drawn away into fleshly interests and, uh, short-term solutions to, uh, to bigger problems. The word of God provides the highest standard for us to follow. And as we unite underneath the banner of God's word and his truth, what are, what happens to us? We're drawn together. We're unified. And also, may I add what I also heard, what was interesting about our talks about um, our missions and our outreach and things is that the word of God was featured prominent in everything that we said. If you listen carefully to what Laura was uh, 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 presenting to us with the CHE program, is that it's not just going there to do the good and necessary things that the health community can bring, but it's also to bring the change of hearts that are made possible by the gospel being preached to the people who need to hear. Apart from the word of God, all of our efforts are just wastes of time. Yeah, they might accomplish good things for the moment, but they are not lasting. They're not eternal things. So that's why we make the word of God our priority. We make prayer our priority. John says that this is the confidence that we have towards Jesus, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. A simple little one-line verse, but if we stopped and thought about that, you mean if I talk to God about things that are in his will, he actually hears me. For those of us that have been in, a faith, in the faith for a long time, I think we take that for granted. I know I do. I sometimes have to step back and say, you mean the words I'm speaking right now, the creator of the universe, the eternal, all-existing one, hears me, cares about what I'm saying? Prayer reminds us 
where our help comes from. It it humbles us to not be uh, problem solvers to our own problems, but it makes us run to the Lord. But prayer also moves the armies of heaven by the will of God. James tells us to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that we may be healed. The power of a righteous person, the prayer, I'm sorry, of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Many months ago, we introduced the Pray 320 challenge where it was based on the scripture verses of, of, of scripture verse of Ephesians 320 that says to him who is able to do far more abundantly all that we could ask or think according to the power at work within us, not according to our power in how much we believe, but in the humility of our asking to the one who's got the power to do it all. And the challenge was for all of us at 3.20 in the afternoon to remind us of the scriptural reference from Ephesians, to be praying together about things that would absolutely blow our minds if God showed up to do. I have a confession to make. I enjoy sitting in my office and having somebody I'm meeting with or talking to and both our phones go off at the same time. It reminds me that there are people engaged in the mission together and there's a partnership that's there. But there are many days where my phone goes off and I don't have that person there to stop and pray with or something. And I'll just say, I got enough going on right now. And so I snooze it. Or I'll sometimes go, I want to pray about what, what did we talk about Sunday that we're supposed to be? You see, it, it just, it creeps into all our lives that if we don't have an anchor or a focus on the things that we should be bringing to the Lord, what do we do? We often solve things and attempt by our own strength and our own power. Yeah. Rather than just sounding like I'm letting us all off the hook, what I'm confessing to you is I would love to re-engage that and to ask for your recommitment to praying 320, even if it's just for this week. I think that if this week we, we set our phones, I don't even mind if you do it right now, I won't think you're playing a game or anything, but if you want to set your phones, what we'll do this week is every afternoon at 320 as a unified church, we will pray that God's word and our prayer life become the most prominent thing in our lives, that we focus our attention on the essentials because that's what impactful people do. That's what impactful churches do because losing focus of the word Losing focus of prayer is the slow death of any endeavor. Remember how I said you can take this home? You might be thinking I'm just speaking in context of where the church is going and what ministry opportunities. Some of you are struggling in your marriage right now. Some of you are struggling with your kids or your parents. Some of you are wondering what next opportunities lie before you because you've finished this leg of your schooling or something along those lines or... Maybe there's a work situation that you can't seem to solve. Losing sight of God's word and going to him in prayer, I'm telling you, is the slow death of any endeavor that you want to accomplish. That's how we bring it before him. That's how we trust in him to be the rescuer, not ourselves. Impactful churches, secondly... Stay focused on people. This is a very simple text that we're looking at. And so we have to look into this a little bit deeper to see what's going on here. But impactful churches are going to notice what's going on in the lives of people. We have complainers in our text. These folks called the Hellenists. And don't think because hell is in their name that they're somehow, you know, rabble rousers or or complainers or something like that. No, just simply means they're Greek speaking Jews. 
and they've been spread uh, over the many generations. They've been spread all throughout the land and have taken on the Greek language and the Greek culture, but still worship the Hebrew God. And, and many times they will migrate back to be in Jerusalem. They want to come back to the holy city before their days on this earth are done. And what that would often create is a situation where one of their spouses, you know, they would, they would, some people would lose their spouses. You would have widows in the midst. And it was a very common tradition, a common part of Jewish culture to look after the needs of the poor and the lonely. But there's a language barrier, there's a culture barrier, and all these people are coming together by the thousands very, very quickly, kind of forced to get along with one another and look after each other's needs. We saw that they had all things in common and they were sharing and everything, but even in the midst of all this beautiful movement, incredible explosion of growth, there's hurt feelings. There's legit concerns that my needs aren't being met, and they couldn't communicate that because they don't speak the same language. They're probably sitting there going, Holy Spirit, come and speak to us and do that whole language thing again because we need to be able to say, hey, I missed my sandwich late yesterday. Who knows how it was all going on and who knows the specifics of what was taking place or even how sensitive the situation was. But it was big enough for Luke to come back and say a pivotal moment was happening in the life of the church. There's a warning for us here, the danger of impersonal leadership while we have our lofty goals and we want to see the success of X, Y, and Z, or we want to say that we're reaching our city and it's going to look that way in terms of buildings or organizational growth or any of those kinds of things that churches so often get distracted with, the danger is that uh, we lose the individual concerns, needs, and perceptions of people. Having a balance of some of those necessary organizational growth things But at the same time, the personal concerns, needs, fears, and interests of the people requires a spirit of wisdom. I want you to notice what doesn't happen here. Here are these high-powered apostles who are uniquely gifted and doing miraculous, jaw-dropping things. The, The stuff they're doing, anybody would say is super important. We'd look at that and be like, okay, they should not be serving tables because they just made that guy get up and walk. He hasn't been able to do it for decades. Those high-powered, important people did not do what we would typically experience in our American culture or in our typical leadership guru state of mind, which is just that kind of roll their eyes like, do you know who I am? Do you know what I'm doing right now? And you're going to trouble me with the fact that they didn't get their sandwich? Really? Is that what you're asking me, the apostle fill in the blank to, a, to solve? There's, there's nothing recorded in Luke that indicates any eye rolling here. If anything, what we see is a get it done uh, mindset. Go ahead and pick out seven men. Go ahead and find the people that are going to solve this problem. You see, godly leadership responds to the perceptions of others. They didn't sit there and belittle the people who had needs or complaints and say, do they understand that we're doing much bigger things than just making sure they're fed? They paid attention to even the smallest detail and said to that person, that is a very legitimate concern. The reality is when it comes down to our stomachs and our health, doesn't that doesn't get any more personal than that, does it? This was a very acute 
issue for the Hellenists and they were bringing it up. And I'm sure it had to have been somewhat intimidating to do so for these people that were making people drop dead, healing other people, speaking in languages that they never spoke before. And they're like, um, I don't know how to bring this up, but I didn't get fed yesterday. I don't know how they do that, but they do. So godly leadership responds to the perception of others. It doesn't just rely on the facts on the ground or, Hey, that's not my intention. I didn't intend to skip the meal. We'll figure it out. It's just a bug. It's just a glitch. But don't bother me with these kinds of things. No, they focused on the priority of even somebody's perceptions, whether they be right or wrong. They took them into consideration. And they also placed a high priority on connection. What happens? Their response, as we saw in verse five, is what they said in response was, we're not going to be distracted from the teaching of the word and prayers. We're going to find some guys to help you out with this. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He's going to play out prominently, hugely in our next two chapters. And Philip, who's also going to play strongly in the formation of the church and getting the gospel in the Greek culture and things. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a whole bunch of other names that we can't pronounce. They choose seven men full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. What we don't know, because we're not looking at it that closely, but what we're we're seeing here is that he picked Greek-speaking leaders. So the Hellenists said, we're having a language barrier here. We can't even express our complaint. Maybe they're saying, we're a little bit sheepish to bring it up. You guys are really busy. You're high-powered, this and that. The the apostles respond with, you know, it's a legitimate concern. Would it help you if we found people that spoke your language? Would that give you a seat at the table? Would that give you some representation? And that's exactly what they do. It isn't a dismissal. It isn't a we're too good for this. They're like, let's keep this thing going. And these are our new brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's meet their needs. They're demonstrating for us that godly shepherding will stop at nothing to provide for the sheep. This idea of language and hearing the voice of the shepherd, of course, mattered to Jesus. We saw that all through John chapter 10. In particular, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. You will meet others who don't speak like you, who don't have the same cultural background. I'll bring them in and I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so that there will be one flock, one shepherd. It's like these guys remembered that under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. They anticipated, oh, this is going to happen. We're going to meet people who are not like us. We are going to meet people, though they are surrendered to the same Lord and Savior we have. Their backgrounds, their experiences, their other barriers are not going to feel like ours. They're going to be a little bit dicey for us to work through. Let's make sure we don't dismiss them, is what we see happening here. So impactful churches stay focused on the people. I don't mean, you don't hear me saying that we're led around by everybody's complaint that we drop everything we're doing in order to make sure that nobody has something they can whine about or complain about or any of those sorts of things. That wouldn't be good leadership as well. But to not be concerned, to not be considerate of every complaint, fear, need, or situation would be guilty of bad leadership. Lastly, impactful churches stay focused on spiritual maturity. The temptation for any church is to find the most talented people, the most 
successful people, maybe outside of the realm of the church, or maybe even just the most available people. That person, of all the warm bodies, they are the warmest body ready to go. We need somebody jump in and get it done. What we see so often that happens in the life of a church is if people go by those earthly or worldly standards that we create an, an environment that is a mild wide and an inch deep. Because spiritual maturity is not the thing that we're focused on. Growth in Christ as we disciple one another is not the most important thing. As not only as we are handpicking, but as we're seeing what people can become when the Lord gets a hold of them. The apostles are stating that they're placing a high priority on something like reputation. Verse 3 says, therefore, pick out from among you seven men. Yes, of course, Greek speaking, able to relate, but not just because of that. Find men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. The, the word deacon is not here. Perhaps you've heard the word deacon in church settings and things, and we picture them being the type who are maybe the, like the pastor's right-hand uh, men or different service um, people in the church to make sure things get done and stuff, and that's all true. But that hasn't been introduced yet. But this seems to be the precursor of what a deacon is. Somebody who has some aspect of leadership but also demonstrates a willingness for hands-on service, distinct even from the calling of an elder who is to be able to teach and to grow people spiritually, that the deacons have very similar requirements and giftings, but the pressure or the weight of being able to teach and do that discipling thing is not necessarily laid on them as heavily as it is the elders. Timothy uh, will hear the instructions of Paul on establishing deacons in his church. And you'll hear things like in 1 Timothy 3 that deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Verse 13, for those who serve well as as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. We're hearing words like dignified, good standing. Apparently, what others think of us as we walk with Christ really does matter. In a culture where we say, it doesn't matter what other people think, we know what that means, that we shouldn't necessarily do everything that everyone expects of us. But to get away from having a dignified lifestyle, one that we know is to be an example for others, gets away from God's original design for his leadership of the church. So they place a high priority on things like reputation because they know the works must follow. They must have supported that reputation. And so we see that spelled out here in their priority of lifestyle. They, specif- they specify specifically <laughs> obedience and wisdom. These are men that are going to be full of the Spirit, which means they will be obedient to the Lord. They will be controlled by the Holy Spirit. They'll be loyal to Him. They will be consumed with the things of God. And they'll demonstrate wisdom. There's a lot of smart people There's a lot of knowledge. There's a lot of uh, intelligence that finds its way in through the church doors. But God values wisdom. God values an applied knowledge, a knowledge that is in, in relationship to that spirit of obedience. It reads people. It reads situations. It comes at things with the right kind of timing and tact. 
So we've got to ask ourselves the question, if we're talking about people that are that super qualified, why did the apostles say, we want seven of those types of individuals to handle this problem about lunch not being served? It seems like overkill for just making sure there's a better distribution. I believe, I'm kind of reading into this a little bit, but I believe the apostles went that strong in the qualifications because they knew it wasn't just about lunch. That this was a matter of unity, that if we're not looking at the diversion or the distraction that Satan is sending and we don't approach this with wisdom and sensitivity, then we're going to just solve a temporary problem and give away the whole church to the schemes of the enemy. People that are, are, are in tune with their obedience to the spirit that are willing to apply their knowledge in that obedience, in, in, in other words, expressing wisdom, they're going to pay attention to the needs that are being expressed, the feelings that are being felt, the fears that are, that are, that are um, happening in people's lives, and then also the potential controversies and the upheavals that can come if we don't handle this wisely. So rather than just saying we need some available people to roll up their sleeves and serve soups and sandwiches, they're saying we need some people to make sure that this isn't just about the lunch line. That this is more about how two cultures collide, how people that have backgrounds and, and, and uh, differences uh, before they came to Christ, that they merge well in unity in the church. I believe the early church avoided disaster at this very pivotal moment by staying focused on what mattered. They said, we know first and foremost, it has to be about the word of God that we're being, that we're preaching and learning that we have to bring these things before the Lord in a healthy and regular prayer life in a constant prayer life. We have to make sure that we're doing it not in the absence of people or leaving them in the dust, but bringing them along and including them in the journey. And also, as we're doing that, we're watching them grow in godliness. Satan was attempting to distract them from all this incredible success by flaring up the normal human emotions that all of us feel. We get a little slighted. We get a little left behind. We get misunderstood. We feel like someone's not looking after our needs. And it's so tempting of us, even if we do it subtly, to say, I'm not feeling great by the way, how the way I was treated. It isn't to say, the scripture is not saying your feelings don't matter. It isn't saying that the scripture isn't telling us that we are never going to feel this way. If we're in Jesus, we're just always going to agree all the time and we're always feeling good. We're always supportive of one. These things happen. We're going to feel like, say, somebody didn't serve me that sandwich, figuratively speaking. But not recognizing that what happens in my flesh and in my spirit, however I respond to that, either I'm the one complaining or I'm the one hearing the complaint. If I don't change my approach, then I'm letting Satan say, yeah, don't come and fuel that fire within me. And it starts blowing up the unity of the church. Unfortunately, because he's been successful, the church is often better at fighting each other than it is at fighting the gates of hell. So the question for each and every one of us personally, as we're looking at the church as an organism, the bride of Christ, or even in our own lives, as we leave these doors and we go back to our families and our environments and things, the question is, have you been thrown off target by focusing on typical complaints or the struggles or the battles of this life? Have you lost your center? What am I supposed to be focusing on? Because it seems like I can't make anybody happy or I can't make any of this seem to work. The mission of Christ 
for each and every one of us is to aim higher. By holding his word high, depending on him in prayer and striving for acting and being more like Jesus, what we're doing is we're beating back the schemes of hell. We, we won't do it right. We're going to make some mistakes. We're going to mess up some of our timing. All of those things, but none of that will contribute to Satan's winning if we're focusing on those essentials. I'm going to ask for you to, again, as a way of making the word of God a priority for you in this week to come, a very simple next step would be to read ahead for next week, where in the message, Lord willing, we're going to attack a whole bunch of, of uh, scripture in, um, in Acts 6 and 7. 7 itself is a gigantic chapter, and the way our preaching schedule is and what's happening with Stephen and all he's standing up to and experiencing, we're going to cover that in one sweep. You'd be far better served to come in prepared, having pre-read the passage, thought about what it's saying, think about how we might be applying it as we get going, and so coming into this, and so I'll be able to kind of pick the um, essential parts of the passages for our topic at hand. But that's a way to uphold the Word of God, to make it prominent in your in your week. Do as Mike had mentioned before, and participate in the daily reading of the Word to be saturated with the thoughts of God. To let your phone or some other device remind you, whether it's in your morning prayer time or your afternoon reminder at 320, any of those sorts of things, Lord, how do I come before you and have a conversation with you, reminding myself where my help comes from? And then again, how do I become more patient with those around me? How do I start to recognize that some of those complaints might be indicating a real need and an opportunity for my giftings and strength to, to help solve the problem? Let's move into the mission of building the kingdom of God through our local church together. And let's do it for Christ's sake as we unite with one another. Would you please stand and let's pray. Lord of God, I want to thank you, Father, for the simplicity of your instruction to your bride. God, as your church, we move forward with very simple and straightforward instruction. It reminds me of what you told the apostles when you freed them from jail. Go into the temple and teach. So your instruction for us is straightforward. We complicate it. We get distracted because we allow our flesh to come in. But Lord, you've, you've, you've game planned for all of that in your Holy Spirit fixes and tweaks us and those around us all along. Lord, I thank you, God, for the unity of this church throughout the many years. I thank you, Lord, for the unity in mission and in purpose. But Lord, we never want to rest on that. We don't want to sit back as those who feel like we figured it out or that we're doing it better than anybody else. Lord, as we just saw from your word that this is not about any human being's schemes, strategies, or abilities to hold together, that your spirit is what moves. So, Lord, we surrender to your leadership. We surrender, Lord, to your grace, knowing that this, this church and all that are like it are what you care about. It really isn't anything we could do, Lord, to throw you off your game or your mission. We just want to participate and bring you the honor and the glory because it's what you rightly deserve. So move in our midst, Lord. We thank you for your, our time together. We thank you for your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.